There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast, usually with Greg Kruminski and Colin Andrews. And today we have Steve Molina back in the chair. Steve, thanks for stepping in to take Greg's seat for this episode. Cool. Thanks. How many episodes have you been a co-host on now, Steve? Colin, this will be my third and really looking forward to it. Well, three is a cool number. I was just reading about this. Three, considered as the perfect number, the number of harmony, wisdom, and understanding. It's also the number of time past, present, and future. So you've been on in the past, you're now on in the present, and you'll be on in the future. So thanks for joining. Cool. The triad. The triad. That's right. Steve, last week, Greg and I talked about the one question that is at the root of all investment questions. Any idea what that is? I don't know. Well, yeah, you do, because you listened to the episode, didn't you? I did. I did. Let me see. Market timing? That's right. Market timing. And it's framed in ways like, is it a good time to do this? Or is it a good time to do that? We also talked about the struggle and how younger investors have not had to deal with any major corrections. So if you have somebody who was like, I don't know, graduating college in 2009, in their whole adult life, all they've seen is the stock market go up in value, with the exception of March of last year, and how people that haven't struggled really don't have an appreciation for what they have. And for any listeners that are curious about that conversation, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's episode. But today... We're going to carry on with this market timing question, but in a different arena, and that is in the bond market. And so we're pleased to have with us on the show today, Alex Heron. Alex is Executive Vice President of National Sales and Business Development for PIMCO. That's quite the title, Alex. I really like it. PIMCO is one of the largest bond managers in the world, and I think the assets under management are something like $2.2 trillion. So Alex holds the Certified Financial Planner, chartered financial analyst designations, and has been in the investment industry for 25 years. So welcome to the Free Lunch Podcast, Alex. Thanks for having me. Happy to be part of this triad here today. Yeah, the past, present, future, or what were the other ones? There was a birth, life, and death. Let's go with a different triad of three. Yeah, let's go with life. Good. Sounds good. Let's hop right into the questions there, Alex, and give us your thoughts on this. So tell us your story. How'd you end up where you are today? Well, thanks, Steve. As Colin mentioned, I've been doing this 25 years, so it's been a little while. And I started back in 1996, before the last big crisis in 1999 that you would both remember so well. Y2K? Is that the one? Y2K, the tech tech bubble, crack, all that kind of stuff that we've all seen over the years. We talked earlier about a lot of investors haven't seen volatility in the market if they graduated in 2009. Well, all three of us remember a lot of that volatility back in the day. So yeah, I joined back in the 90s and about just under 10 years ago, PIMCO actually reached out to me as they were looking to build their business here in Canada. And I was always fascinated by the bond market. It's a very large market. It's an opaque market. It's a market where people need help. And so I was drawn to PIMCO and I joined back then and it's been a great ride for most of the last decade. Cool. 
this kind of leads into it then. So two-part question, tell us how the bond market works in terms of trades. And then if you can tell the listeners, maybe the magnitude or the size of the bond market, how big the bond market is globally and what the opportunity set is. Good question. I think a lot of listeners probably aren't as familiar with the bond market as they are with the equity market. They all can bring out their smartphones and create a share of Apple in 30 seconds, but they don't really know how that works in the bond market. So to put it in perspective, the bond market is very large. So it's about 110 trillion US. Stock market is somewhere around half that size. So it's very big, even relative to the large stock market. It also doesn't trade like stocks do. It doesn't have a transparent market like the stock market does. It trades more by appointment where large dealers can contact each other and transact with each other and trade large lots of bonds. The other thing to think about with the bond market, it's not a perpetual market like the stock market. And what I mean by that is when a new stock gets created and it does an initial public offering or an IPO, that stock is going to be around for a long time, like potentially forever if it doesn't get bought or go bankrupt. Whereas a bond on average only lasts about five years. So if you think about it, every year in the bond market, roughly 20% of the entire market is being newly issued. So that creates a very different market where the percentage of new issuances is much higher than that of the stock market. So if you're a large investor like a PIMCO or a CIBC or other big investors out there, you can go out and access some of these newly issued bonds. It's much more difficult to do that as an individual investor. Question for you. So when PIMCO does a trade with someone, what's the typical size that a bond might trade hands at? That's a good question. It can really depend. If it's a new issuance, sometimes we could be taking down billions at a time. So it's a significant amount, obviously. If it's a simple trade of an existing bond, it might be in the millions. But these are not kind of retail investors trading $1,000 at a time here. These tend to be significant positions, typically in the millions or potentially even billions. Cool. Well, that actually leads into one of our other questions. Like, So what is the difference between access in terms of bonds to retail investors versus institutional investors? That's a good question as well. And that's really changed over time. You guys have both been in the business a long time. 15, 20 years ago, it was a lot easier for an individual investor to access bonds themselves. And one of the outcomes of that great financial crisis in 2008 was that banks and dealers were much more regulated. And so they then essentially got out of the individual bond game. It used to be they would keep hundreds of billions of dollars in inventory of individual bonds for their retail brokers like yourselves, and you could access those individual bonds. But due to regulations coming out of 2008, they're just really not doing that anymore. So it becomes much more difficult for individual investors to access bonds. And it's typically the institutions that kind of get first pick of these new issuances that come to the market. And I'll give you an example. There was one recently that PIMCO participated in. And because interest rates are low today, there's huge demand for yield. There's huge demand for newly issued, especially corporate bonds. And this bond that we participated in was 10 times oversubscribed, meaning investors wanted 10 times more than was actually even available. And that's at the institutional level. So an individual retail investor is not likely to get access to something like that. Okay. So let's actually go back to March of 2020. Did something happen in March of 2020? 
I was going to say, do we have to go back there? I mean, <laughs> there was a lot going on, obviously, but specifically with bonds. What happened during that time period? Because there was a liquidity issue. And what did PIMCO do to create liquidity during that period? Yeah, let's go back there. I guess it is almost a one-year anniversary, so it's always good to reflect on things in the past. So yeah, last March, it really was a liquidity crisis. And I think it's important for listeners to understand what a liquidity crisis is and to differentiate it between what we call a credit crisis. So let's maybe define the two and talk about the differences. So a liquidity crisis is simply when there's a lot more sellers or something than there is buyers. And that's basically what happened last March. Due to what was going on with coronavirus and people losing their jobs and the emotion that was in the market, there was, you could call it panic or call it people needing to sell things. If you just lost your job, you need income, you need money. So you're going to sell some assets in the market, whether that's a stock or a bond. And if there's a lot of people selling things and not many willing to buy them, then liquidity can dry up. And that's essentially what happened. And, and in the bond market, there were situations where high quality bonds, so investment grade bonds issued by high quality companies that were going to mature very soon, like even in say the next month, some of those went down in price three, four or 5%, which really doesn't make a lot of fundamental sense. If you could buy something at a 5% discount that was going to mature at par, like it's buy something at $95 that's going to be worth a hundred in a month, you would do that all day long. That's about a what a 60% plus annualized return. That's kind of what was happening last March because of this liquidity crisis. And there were so many people selling things that was just causing this kind of downward pressure. There was hundreds of billions of dollars coming out of money market type funds in the US that own some of these kind of corporate bonds. And that was just putting selling pressure. There was leverage unwind. So there was investors that were leveraged. So they borrowed to invest. And when that reverses, that can be pretty ugly. And that's what was happening last March. But it's important to distinguish between that liquidity event and a credit event. A credit event in the bond market would be when you're concerned about a company's ability to pay back that debt in a month. And that wasn't, for the most part, that wasn't a concern. It was more about liquidity. To your question, what was PIMCO doing about it? There's only so much you can do about it. One of the things we've done a pretty good job of in our history is managing overall liquidity and making sure we own a lot of different kinds of bonds and securities that are diversified and liquid so that in situations like that, we own the most liquid kinds of bonds. We own U.S. treasuries and we own cash and short-term investments that tend to be the most liquid thing. So while the prices of some of the bonds in our portfolios did go down in March. Ultimately, that didn't impact our investors in the long term because none of those bonds were really impaired. And so they all kind of bounced back when liquidity returned to the market. Gotcha. I got to jump in here on March. I want people to remember what March felt like because we are in March a year later. And I remember last March, it just felt like everybody was going to die and the world was going to end. I'm exaggerating a bit, but literally, that was a scary time for a lot of people. And so it makes sense that it actually went into all markets, stock market, bond market. There was just a flight. Would that be a fair assessment, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. Nobody saw it coming. It was really unprecedented. And we've never seen a drawdown so quickly 
across all markets. Even 2008 was a more gradual kind of situation. This was super quick. 20 million people in the US losing their jobs like very quickly. That's really unprecedented in many ways. And that just created that liquidity event. And luckily, the central banks and governments of the world had kind of had a playbook that they had built from 2008 that they could kind of put in place fairly quickly to bring liquidity and some stability back to markets, which is why you started to see things rebound as quickly as they did towards the end of March there. And question for you, Alex, how quickly did you see prices respond or bounce back from that low? I think, was it March 23rd, the market low? It was March 23rd. Yeah, the bond market, depending on what part of the bond market you're looking at, it did respond pretty quickly. But the most liquid parts responded the most quickly. The central banks kind of stepped in and started buying government bonds. They started buying high-quality mortgages. And they even made an announcement that they hadn't made after 2008 that they would actually start buying corporate bonds as well. And just that announcement itself brought confidence back to the market. They did buy corporate bonds, but they actually didn't have to buy as much as they maybe might have thought because just the actual statement itself brought enough calm and confidence back to people to start buying them again. Like as Colin said, people thought the world was going to end and here comes the central banks and governments kind of to the rescue to assure people that you know things aren't going to end here. And so things calmed down almost as quickly as they panicked earlier. So let me ask you this then. So what can investors do to protect themselves in these sorts of times where there's extremely volatile markets? I'm sure in this podcast before you've talked about the importance of diversification, but in a market like that, it's never more important to be diversified because you never know what sector is going to get hit the hardest. Let's say you were super excited about the travel and tourism industry, and then all of a sudden this pandemic that nobody could have seen coming comes out of left field. And if that was your portfolio, that was pretty ugly. So diversification is incredibly important. And the role of fixed income in a period like that, fixed income is simply safer than stocks. If you're buying a stock of a company versus the bond of a company, the bond of that company is higher in its capital structure. It's the thing they have to pay back first. So it is safer. It is less volatile. It doesn't move around as much. And that's one of the roles of fixed income to help mitigate volatility and movement in your portfolio in times of stress. And that's worked throughout history, whether that's 2008, whether that's even 2018, people forget the Canadian stock market was down about 8 or 9% that year and bonds were flat to positive that year. And even in March, while bonds did move, they didn't move like stocks did. I, actually, I want to expand on that point a bit about diversification because one of the things we've encountered over the years is somebody might own, I don't know, five or six or 10 different bonds. And they say, look, I'm diversified because I've got a ladder of bonds that are maturing every two years or three years or five years. And all I got to do is hold them to maturity. Why would I ever invest in a pool of bonds that has no maturity? Maybe you can expand on that part in diversification. Well, there's a lot of different reasons for, for that, Colin. I mean, first of all, five or six different bonds is not a lot of different bonds. But that's five or six different bonds. Like they're not the same. Right. Right. <laughs> they're not the same. <laughs> I think there was a guy on TV who used to ring a bell. <laughs> yes. We can all remember lots of safe bonds in Canada that have encountered problems. Companies like Nortel 
yellow pages and the list goes on and on things that you think are safe but they might not be and so diversification with six bonds not the same as diversification at pimco in our portfolios we have hundreds of bonds and no one bond is typically more than one or two percent of the entire portfolio so six bonds not enough definitely in terms of diversification and it also gets to those six bonds those individuals own like we talked about earlier an individual investor doesn't have access to the same opportunity set a PIMCO or other large global investors would have. There's $110 trillion in bonds out there. The Canadian market is 2% of that market. So if you have six Canadian bonds that you can access through your dealer or your bank, that's just not the same as going in the broad toolkit that the large investors out there like PIMCO can access. Right on. Okay, so moving forward, we're getting a lot of this question right now. We see it in the markets, interest rates and inflation. They kind of go hand in hand. Where does PIMCO see interest rates and inflation going into the future? That definitely is the question of the day. We've seen bond yields go up a lot just in the last few weeks, and the market is starting to get maybe a little bit more worried about inflation. And if you think about what inflation is, inflation is just the increase in prices over time. And PIMCO believes that we will see an increase in inflation this year. But as we just said, we're a year from the start of this pandemic. Remember what happened to things like oil prices last March and April when for a while there, oil prices got negative. If you're comparing prices year over year and you're comparing negative oil prices 10 months to a year ago to today, obviously there's going to be a price increase there. And so while there may be some kind of noise in the market and you might see headlines because newspapers like to write sensational things, as we all know, record inflation or lots of inflation coming. In our view, that's going to be more transitory or, or temporary. That's going to be, yes, based on the comparison off of the lows last year, there is an uptick in inflation, but we don't see big inflationary pressures over the next year or two and for a variety of reasons. One of the biggest drivers of inflation is wages and wage increases. And as we mentioned earlier, there was about 20 million jobs lost in the US and several million in Canada. And they're only about halfway back to replacing those jobs. So you basically have to have all those jobs replaced. And even then you need to have kind of pressures on wages. And if you think about what's happened over the last decade or so in society, workers have not increased their ability to demand higher wages. You've seen fewer unions, not more. So we don't see huge wage pressures as a bottom line. The other thing that is more deflationary over time is demographics. The developed worlds are kind of getting older. As populations get older, there's not as many people working. Productivity kind of goes down a little bit. That's deflationary. You've got technology, which is generally deflationary. And you've got this massive overhang of debt in the world, trillions and trillions of dollars of debt that have been created. It's tough to grow a lot in the face of that headwind of debt. So our base case is that we don't see massive inflationary pressures with the caveat that you're probably going to see some volatility and some noise from some of these measures that will come up over the coming weeks and months just due to the low base from last year. Right on. So we're calling this episode a buffet of Buffett and Bonds. And I say that in jest because lots of people spell Warren Buffett's name with one T, which is Buffet. And the reason I bring him up is that 
He has an annual letter to investors that he puts out every year. Warren Buffett is now, I believe, 90 years old, and he released his most recent letter to investors. And in it, he had some comments regarding fixed income, and I'm going to read it. Fixed income investors worldwide, whether pension funds, insurance companies, or retirees, face a bleak future. So that comment led a lot of people to question, should they be investing in bonds? Maybe can you talk about that for a minute? When the oracle speaks, people listen. And it obviously created a lot of headlines out there. I'm not going to disagree with Warren Buffett. What he was referring to, though, was U.S. Treasuries. And he specifically mentioned U.S. Treasuries in that letter. And he talked about U.S. Treasuries, so U.S. government bonds yielding less than 1%. So clearly, an investment return of less than 1% is not overly exciting. And you could argue that is bleak. So I would agree with that sentiment. But what's missing in that assessment is a couple of things. That's only part of the bond market. There's lots of other opportunities in the bond market beyond U.S. Treasuries. And as we talked about, it's a $110 trillion market. There's mortgages, there's higher yielding bonds, there's emerging market bonds, there's bonds from different countries around the world. So there's a lot of different things you can look at and you can generate yields much higher than 1% as a bond investor. You could generate 2% or 3% or 4 or even greater yields as a bond investor, depending on your objectives and your risk tolerance and, and all those things. So the return potential is much greater than just investing in treasury. So that would be point number one. And point number two, which we kind of alluded to, part of the reason people invest in bonds is not just for returns. It's not just about getting the highest possible returns. It's about the whole diversification and asset allocation thing that I'm sure you've talked about on this podcast before, where you want to have fewer bumps in your portfolio ride, so to speak. And as we talked about, bonds can often go different directions than stocks in terms of their returns, and that helps smooth out the ride. Think about times of equity volatility, like 2008 or 2018, or even March of this year or last year, when bonds were sometimes going the opposite direction of stocks, which is the whole reason you want to have them. So they still definitely have a place in portfolios from a diversification point of view, from a kind of a risk mitigation point of view, where they're lower risk than stocks. So it lowers your overall risk of your portfolio. And then lastly, I'd say he was just talking about buying a government bond, and then just sitting there for 10 years. In the world of bonds, active managers, and I'm not just saying this because I work at PIMCO, active managers tend to outperform. PIMCO has actually done kind of empirical studies on this, and we've seen that just the average or median active bond investor actually outperforms a passive buy a bond and sit on it for 10-year approach. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. I'm happy to elaborate, but there's value in active management on top of all the diversification benefits that you get from owning bonds. I have a comment question sort of thing about what we were talking about. Isn't it fair to say that if somebody has, how much is Buffett worth or Buffet? How much is Mr. Buffet worth? Like many, many, many billions. Like, billions. Yeah, he's what? Still in the top five or something like right. that? Right. So- can we all agree that, look, the expected return for stocks is higher than bonds over a long period of time? Is that a fair statement? I certainly hope so, because you're taking significantly more risk, so you should get rewarded for that. So if you had, let's just say, I don't know, $5 billion, you're worth $5 billion. I guess you could argue, because your time horizon could be many decades, because your money is going to go on to future generations, there is an argument that says, 
Well, yeah, maybe you don't need bonds because even if the market goes down 50%, you know it's going to most likely recover back to that period over some period. So is that a fair statement to say? Yeah, I think if you have an infinite time horizon, for sure. So that's why I'm talking about this Mr. Buffett's discussion about how it's a bleak future. I don't think it's really a bleak future for the clients that we deal with that are worried about there could be a correction within the next 12 months. It could be a deep correction. It could be there might be a catalyst around the corner that takes out 40% of equities. And you have to have, to your point, Alex, an asset allocation that has enough in bonds to withstand those really deep dives in equities. Absolutely. Particularly to your point, if you are somebody who is retired or you're looking at retirement, because if your portfolio goes down 40% and you're taking out a couple thousand dollars a month or whatever to live on, that's a painful thing and difficult thing to recover from. So definitely important to take a balanced approach. And at the end of the day, we're all human. And as humans, we have emotions and we react emotionally to things. I'm not sure there was too many investors that were pounding the tables to buy as equity markets were going down 30, 40%, which would have been the logical thing to do, but they're emotional and they're human. So they didn't want to buy. It's easy for Buffett or some investors to say these things if they have an infinite time horizon or if they kind of train their brain not to think emotionally about things. But for the 99.5% of the rest of us, it's to our benefit to protect ourselves and take that risk mitigation balanced approach to things. Well, even when we discuss portfolio management, I think a lot of people forget that we use bonds to rebalance portfolios when things are performing poorly. It is one of those tools that we use in the portfolio. So what you mean is that when the stock market is down, like it was March 23rd of last year, almost a year ago, and the bond market was up for the most part, right? For the most or part. Flat or up. It was easy to sell some bonds that were at a higher price and invest in stocks that were at a lower price. Correct. What do we call it? Rebalancing? Hey, I think you just came up with a word there. I think you've talked about it in the past. <laughs> Hey, let's just wrap up a couple more questions here with Alex. Steve, what else do you got for Alex? Okay. So how are more risk-averse investors supposed to manage a low interest rate environment then? Those are the investors that like their 4% GICs. 4%? I remember the clients asking, like, what happened to the 7 and 8% GICs? Well, I hate to tell those investors that they're probably not seeing those GIC rates anytime soon. And that is a challenge for those investors that are used to taking basically no risk and making a few percent. That's just not happening anytime soon. And even the joke is now, some people on the call may have heard of something that was called a HISA or high interest savings account. They had to get rid of the H because it's no longer high. So now it's just called an ISA, interest savings account. And I think the yield on those, and you guys can tell me, but I think it's like 0.2% or something like to leave your money in the bank or maybe even less now. And GICs are now less than 1%, I think. So the challenge to your point, Steve, is is what do people do? And it all depends on people's willingness to take on a small commensurate amount of risk to generate higher returns. And for some people, the answer might be they have to get that 0.2% return because they need to sleep at night and they can't stand seeing things move even a small fraction on their statement. But for those investors that can understand that by taking on a little bit more risk, even in a lower risk fixed income portfolio, they can generate higher returns. And again, depending on 
their objectives and their tolerance, maybe a 1% or 2% or 3% or 4% type income, they can generate that through fixed income markets. And so there are lots of options out there for people to find what we would call a good kind of risk-adjusted return. You are taking risk, but again, bonds are higher in the capital structure. They're generally safer. And unless a company really gets badly impaired, you generally get paid your money back over time. Alex, really appreciate you coming on this call with us. And hey, we're not done with them yet. We're well, not done. I know, but last question for you. What are some parting thoughts on all things fixed income you can share with our audience? One of the questions you asked, which we didn't quite get to the answer was, you're talking about inflation and interest rates. We said we don't see massive upticks in inflation, but you have seen interest rates go up. And interest rates have gone up. For example, just in the last few weeks, you've seen interest rates go up to about from 1% to 1.5% in the last few weeks or months, which may not seem like a lot, but that's a big move in the bond market. And that's happened because the market is anticipating inflation. And when inflation happens, the central banks around the world start raising interest rates. So the market is kind of anticipating this inflation, and that's why interest rates have started to move up. And so to your original question of, do you see interest rates going up a lot more, or where do you see them going? Is our base case at PIMCOs, we don't see them going up massively from here. So if you're a fixed income investor, or if you're looking at investing in fixed income with these rates higher than they were even a month ago, it's not actually a bad time to be looking at fixed income investing for a longer term fixed income investor. And then the other thing I think it's important for fixed income investors to understand is the media and the newspapers write about when interest rates go up, that's bad for bonds. And the reality is it's bad for bonds in the short term, but it's actually good for bonds in the long term. It's like working out short-term pain for long-term gain. And so as interest rates gradually go up, as this economy recovers, bond investors should be happy because it means their longer-term returns are actually going to be higher. Okay, Alex, we're going to finish with a speed round. Oh, exciting. This is just for fun. Uh-oh. No right or wrong questions and no compliance required for these questions. So, <laughs> Okay. When you're not working, what do you do for fun? Well, I like to camp. going to drive out to Vancouver Island, assuming the border's open at the end of March and take the kids out there and maybe do some surfing, do some walking on the beach. Right on. Any books you're reading right now? Are you a reader? You do that sort of stuff. What are books again? Do they have paper? Or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> They're right behind your head. I can see them on your bookshelf. That's just for show. You know what I've been doing is actually listening to podcasts. Ah, cool. As a way to fill kind of that spare time. So, of course, the Free Lunch podcast is one of my favorites. Of course. So that's one that everyone should be listening to. But I uh, know there's lots of good, interesting podcasts that are out there as well. Right on. What about any shows you're binging or watching these days on any of the streaming services? Well, yes, definitely we all binge those. I binged the chess one, Queen's Gambit, like I'm sure many people on the call did. And in fact, you ask what I do in my spare time. I've actually been playing chess because of the Queen's Gambit. <laughs> I think, what did I read? Like 100,000 people a day or something are signing up on chess.com because of that show. I don't know if you guys oh, watched yeah. it. No, no. Oh, yeah. My wife and kids, we've started to play it quite a bit at home. So Exactly. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, I got to tell you, I really enjoyed the show, but it has not led to any <laughs> chess purchases. <laughs> you enjoyed it for different reasons? I mean, hey, I grew up playing chess like every other kid without Wi-Fi. Yeah. But yeah. 
when I say to my teenage son, hey, do you want to sit down and play a game of chess? He's like, why is the Wi-Fi down? <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, here's a tough one for you. Pick a number between one and 10. Four. Wrong. Anyways. <laughs> uh, damn. <laughs> Better so luck close. next time. Better luck next time. All right, well, listen, that was a lot of fun. Alex, thanks again for joining us on the free lunch. We hope you had a good time. We enjoyed chatting with you and maybe we'll have you back sometime if you're free. Awesome. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for the time and great to see you doing this podcast and we'll keep in touch. All right. Thanks again, Alex. All right. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Well, thanks for joining us today on the free lunch. Steve, that was a lot of fun having Alex on the show. Yeah, it's pretty good. Nice insight from his views and from PIMCO's views. Exactly. And to his point, to the listeners that don't understand or don't know, the bond market is two to three times the size of the stock market, yet the stock market is what gets all of the attention. Yeah, I'd say so. So listen, thanks everybody for joining us. Remember to give us a rating if you happen to listen to us on Apple Podcasts or any of the other streaming services that allow you to give a rating. We'd really appreciate that. And if there's any content that you'd like us to look at for future episodes, please let us know. Cool. All right. Thanks, Colin. Okay. Thank you. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Do subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.